Hello, and thank you for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church Maryville here in Maryville, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can visit our website to find out more information about our church or to find our full audio archive with all of our messages. So you can find all of that at www.vineyardchurch.us, or you can also subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. So good to see you. So good to see you. If uh, you're a little crowded and you're like, you know, I wish I had a little more room. Uh, just we have more room in the 8.30 and the 11.30 services. I know one's too early and the other one's too late. That's why we have more room there. But if you're looking for some more space, that'd be the way to go. Just a suggestion. I just want to point out, Sharon at one point said, I know none of you can write a check for $2 million. If you thought to yourself, I could write a check for $2 million. <laughs> then uh, let's talk. I have, I got some ideas. Just got a couple ideas. I also just want to point out on the announcement video, I'm so grateful to Zach. First time on the announcement video. Good job, Zach Weaver. Yeah. And here's the impressive part. Did you hear him say we're going to have a gathering where uh, we're, the guys are getting together and we're going to celebrate because uh, UT is going to beat Georgia, which is a statement of fact. Come on. Come on. I'm so nervous, y'all. I don't believe that at all. I'm just so afraid. I just want to point out that Zach is from what state? Georgia. Georgia. He has a PhD hanging on his wall from the University of Georgia. He's not rooting for Georgia. He's not rooting for Tennessee. He also, I'd just like to point out that he has a PhD whenever I have a chance because I think that's impressive. Uh, but he's just being a team player. And I heard him say that. I was like, you don't mean that at all. That's great. I, I thought, I felt touched. In a real, in a very real way. Okay, so we are on this. We're in this series called "Onward for Your Kingdom." I think this is part seven or something like that. And uh, for this last bit of this long series, we are focusing on the vision and mission of our church. So we're continuing that today. This is building a lot on what we said last week. So if you weren't here, that would be a podcast that you might want to grab and get a bit of our foundation. We'll do a. I'll do a crummy recap here in just a second. That won't, that won't quite do the trick, but um, that's where we're headed. Also, heads up, uh, especially at the beginning here, it's, it's kind of a big word Sunday. I always warn you, sometimes um, there, are, there are days that I talk very fast and use a lot of big words. Um, and if you're here going, ah, it's not my style. It's not my style either. It just happens sometimes. This is one of those weeks, um, but you guys are the smartest people in all of East Tennessee, so I'm not, not worried about that part. Just a heads up, that's where we're going. Uh, last week, we talked about how the pace of change in our society um, has gone from really fast to really crazy over-the-top warp speed fast, like Star Wars stuff, like things happened all, when things have really been shifting just in the last few years, there's been a digital uh, revolution, a a stack of social and moral revolutions, there's been a reshaping of political norms, and now everything's, and those new political norms are basically are that everybody acts like monsters all the time, and that's only a slight exaggeration, Um, and then with all that going on, there was a pandemic, This massive pandemic that somehow stopped everything and yet at the same time sped everything up. And what we experienced here in the Bible Belt, which was new, this was was the last place, the Bible Belt was the last place that Christendom was holding. And it's my opinion that Christendom collapsed during the pandemic and all of that social unrest over the last few years, even here in the Bible Belt. 
Uh, a quick reminder, when I say Christendom collapsed, Christendom is not Christianity. Christendom is the culture that emerges in a place when Christianity is the dominant religion for a long time, okay? And so Christendom has collapsed, and now even the Bible Belt doesn't feel all that Bible Belty. And so that feels very different. And who knows what's next, man, because I, we can't really talk about this in the past tense because it's not as if things have stopped. Um, they've just kept coming, and they've kept coming in uh, rapid speed. So now there's just a bunch more stuff in addition to all the things, not even stuff we talked about last week. Now there's a, there's a, a war going on, a couple of them, and a renewed nuclear threat. That suddenly we're talking about that again. A very weird and almost inexplicable sort of economic moment is happening as well. So all this is, it's ongoing. What I want us to do um, last week in this is for us to just take a moment, look around, assess this reality. Because what I think we can do is, is quickly realize um, that we're in a very different world. Like, you don't have to be a really astute social observer to see it. If you'll just pause and look, you'll see it. It's just different now. You can feel it. Um, there was a guy, Leslie Newbigin, who is a brilliant man, a very compassionate man, incredible missionary. In the 1930s, he was in the UK. He got, he got training there in seminary, and then he went on to be a missionary to India. He was in India for a very long time. Um, he did not come home to visit at any point, and he was in India doing missions work for four decades. He left in the 30s and came back in the 70s. And when he finally came home, he thought he was going to return to an England that was similar to the England that he left behind. And what he found was that everything was dramatically different. Because in that time, they experienced the collapse of Christendom. They became a post-Christian and thoroughly secular environment. And he looked around, and because he'd been gone for 40 years, he could feel it. He could see it and recognize it in a way that other people around them couldn't. Because everybody else had sort of been the frog in the kettle, if you're familiar with that illustration. Things were changing, 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 but you don't really realize it because you're in it. He's gone and comes back and goes, whoa, this is entirely different. There's biblical illiteracy is everywhere. In fact, he tells a story of teaching to, he came back teaching to a group of seminary students. So these are people training for ministry. And he kept talking about the gospel this, the gospel that, the gospel this, and they didn't know what he was talking about it. He had to explain it to people training for ministry. This is what the gospel is. They thought they were talking about, he was talking about one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so when he came back, he could see what other people couldn't see. He left as a missionary from the UK, and without even knowing it, he returned as a missionary to the UK. And that's where his greatest ministry was, even though he was uh, at retirement age at that point, apparently he was just getting started because he was the guy who sounded the alarm and woke up a whole bunch of sleeping Christians throughout the United Kingdom. Here's why I'm telling you about Leslie Newbigin. Listen, change has happened so rapidly in the last few years that if we will take some time and evaluate it, we can all see it. If you were around in 2015, looking around, pretty sure just about all of you were here, in 2015, and you're still around now, then you have seen 40 plus years worth of change just in the last few, which means you can all feel the before and the after in this context the way that only Leslie Newbigin could 50 years ago in the UK. 
which means all of us can be enlisted in a very important work of being the voice of calm and the voice of reason and the voice of hope that Leslie Newbegin was in his society. Y'all still with me? Okay. Now, um, we're living in something that Mark Sayers calls a gray zone. Uh, Mark Sayers, by the way, is an author I really appreciate. If this stuff that I'm talking about now uh, interests you, that'd be a great place for you to look next. Um, and he, has, he calls this a gray zone that we're in now. It's a very important idea. It means we're in a time of transition. We talked about this a whole lot during the Uprising series, and we do a really, really quick reminder about that. We just use different terminology than, than the gray zone, uh, but I, I think that's helpful. Um, here's what we talked about. Uh, Christendom has fallen from the throne of our culture, so it doesn't sit atop the American mindset the way that it once did. The mindset of America has shifted away from that. And I'm going to remind you of a very important idea that I harped on a lot during that series. And I'm going to harp on it again, but just much quicker this time, which is simply this. We do not need to fret about the collapse of Christendom. There's a whole bunch of people who are panicking because our culture has shifted and it feels like the end of the world. It's not. Christianity is not Christendom, remember? Christendom collapsed for a reason. And it happened under the watchful eye of a sovereign God. Okay? Christendom, as we said a few months ago, was increasingly defiled. It became more and more about power, about money, about institutional control, about winning. When the way of Jesus is about being last of all and servant of all. What happened? This is what happened. God let Christendom fall because it was actually hurting the cause of Christ. So, it can feel disarming and unsettling to us, but here's what I'm saying. So be it. So be it. Now, in the wake of that, Christian nationalism is exploding. It's exploding here in the United States, but especially here in the Bible Belt. And you say, well, what's Christian nationalism? Quickly, it is a heresy that preys upon the fears of Christians and insists that we should direct most, if not all, of our efforts to trying to prop up what's left of Christendom. We have to regain institutional power and control that's been lost over recent years. I'm telling you, that's wrong. Don't fall for that. We don't live for Christendom. We live for Jesus. And we need to be focused on the work of Jesus and not trying to save a bunch of defiled institutions. Amen? Cool. Here's the deal. As I said, Christendom has fallen from the throne of our culture. But no other worldview has ascended to that throne. It's vacant now. That's why this is a gray zone. Because we don't really know what's next. It's gray because, well, what's going to now control as, at the end of the shifting? What's going to be sitting atop the throne of our culture? We don't know. That's a gray zone. Is it going to be the political left? Is it going to be the political right? Will it be Christian nationalism? Will it be expressive individualism? We've talked about all these words. If you don't know these words, eh, Look them up. I don't know. Hedonism. Is it going to be nihilism? Is it going to be critical theory? On and on and on. I could go with these because all of these ideologies are fighting it out to get on top of that throne. And here's a weird thing that's happened. Even old, long since discarded ideologies are, we're hearing about them again. We're hearing about Marxism again. Apparently there are Nazis again. How are there Nazis again? What is going on right now? This is what's going on. We're living in a gray zone. It's unclear what will ascend the throne of our culture, and it's incredibly disoriented. Okay, now if you've been here for a couple of months, that was review. 
If not, then you're probably confused. I don't know how to fix it. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> now, here's a new idea, an important idea. We'll take more time on this one. Um, we, and by, by we, I mean all humans everywhere, okay? All humans everywhere. This is what we do, okay? In every society, for time immemorial, okay? We build institutions in societies. We build institutions in order to solve problems, to create stability, okay? This is just what humans do. Stay with me. We create governments, for example, massive institutional entities. Why do we do this? Because we need the things that governments provide. We need laws to govern us. We need education for our children. We need infrastructure in our, like, to make stuff work and to make things go. We need food security. Like, we need to know that the food is going to be in the grocery stores a month from now, tomorrow. We need to know that when we turn the water on at the tap, that that water is going to be clean and able to be drink, able for us to drink it. We need law enforcement. On and on we could go. There, those are all institutions. We create those institutions to solve problems, create stability. Okay? There are other types of institutions. There are religious institutions. Religious institutions, like the church, like our faith, they give us a grid for another set of questions, another set of problems. Like, how do we think about the divine? Is there a God or isn't there a God? Is there an afterlife? If there is an afterlife, how do we get ready for it? What should be our governing moral principles? Just on and on and on. Big questions that are addressed and create stability through institutions. Okay. There are also social institutions, formal and informal. Social institutions give us norms. They just let us know how to behave. It sort of establishes what is and isn't kosher in a society. It teaches how to interact with one another. Those are a bit squishier, but they're a constant reality. All right, that's some institutions. Therefore, and stay with me now on this one. If you're following, you should be able to see this. We can think of institutions as structures that societies build to help us manage our anxiety. Say it again, think about it. These structures that we build that create stability, that solve problems, these are really structures that we build to help us manage our anxiety. Because without the solution to those problems, our anxiety would run amok. So, let's say that our government and our political processes are just all humming along perfectly healthy and strong, which is a funny thing to say, I know. But, let's pretend that's the reality. What that means then, there is a whole bunch of stuff that we don't have to worry about anymore. Like a whole bunch, like we're secure. We have a way to educate our kids. There is a stable food supply. We're protected from outside threats. That's a big part of it, by the way. It's a big, scary world. A lot of people have big guns. It helps a lot that we have the biggest guns. That helps us manage our anxiety. The water is clean. The roads are safe. The money that we put in a bank will be there tomorrow, and it will still have value tomorrow. We could go on and on and on. Those structures bear the weight of many of our most basic fears and anxiety. Here's where you nod your head. If it's true, don't lie to me now. We're in church. Y'all with me? <laughs> that lie, I lost some of you on the don't lie part. Okay. I'm going to keep going, though. So that's a set of institutions. And again, back through it, religious institutions in much the same way address our basic fears, or we could say our anxieties. Why are we here? Like major existential stuff that we all feel the weight of. Why are we here? 
Where did this all come from? Is there a God? And if so, are they good? Why does any of this matter? Can we be forgiven? Can we be accepted and love in the midst of our brokenness? What happens when we die? Again, major fundamental basic human questions and anxieties. Whether we realize it or not, these institutions help make us stable and secure in this world, which is why, again, whether we realize it or not, we question and we challenge institutions when things get tough. When it gets hard, we look there. And that's entirely logical because of what they're there for in the first place. If we're stressed, then we point the finger at the institutions that are supposed to help us manage our stress. And fair enough, is what humans do. Now, I'm not saying that's right or that's wrong. I'm just saying that it is. It just is. And it's always been that way. But here's the outcome. Stay with me. You guys will get it. You're very smart. We get anxious, and then because of that anxiety, we turn our ire to the institutions that we've built to help us manage our anxiety. I'll say again, sometimes that's the right thing to do. Sometimes they need to be torn down. Sometimes it isn't. Depends on the circumstances. I'm not making any commentary about our current circumstances. Again, I'm just saying, not that it's right or wrong, it just is. When humans are anxious, we tear down the structures designed to help us manage our anxiety. So think about it. What does that do? Some of you know you just don't want to say it out loud. You're like, is that the moment? Is, that, is this the pause where I speak up? And what if I'm wrong? I get it. I'll just tell you. It creates even more anxiety. See it? It's just, it's a vicious cycle. It leads from fear to then full-on panic. So if you're confused, it's okay. I'm explaining it this way. This might be a bit simpler. simpler. It's a bit like being afraid that your life raft is starting to lose air. And so you just grab your knife and slice it open. That's what I'm talking about. And maybe, look, maybe the life raft was faulty. Maybe it needed to go away. Maybe you put that life raft in its place, okay? But your anxiety just got worse, not better, and you just became less safe, not more. You get the idea? All right, now let's do some real life examples. We're in a very anxious system right now. It's kind of in the water these days, isn't it? Not in the actual water, we still have clean water, but just in the air. Okay, there's a lot of anxiety, so things like this are happening all around us. There's, there's a lot of life rote stabbings happening right now, okay? Here's an example. I'm not sure that I can trust law enforcement, so let's defund the police. That's called stabbing the lifeboat. I'm not sure I can trust the election results, so let's raid the Capitol building. That's stabbing the lifeboat. Did you notice I picked an example from the extreme left and from the extreme right? That's how a pastor keeps his job around here. <laughs> you hit both sides, all right? <laughs> Here's another one. I can't trust the integrity of all church leaders, so let's abandon the family of God entirely. On and on we could go. You see it? Life wrote, lifeboat stabbings. It's really hard to say. And why would you ever need to say lifeboat stabbings? <laughs> this is my fault. I put myself here. 
Okay, and there are also social institutions that are eroding as well. It's just harder to see the social inst institutions because they're not as clearly codified and they change in different cultures, but it's still happening all around this. I'll give you some examples. Hey, some Muslims are radicalized, so I'm going to oppose all of them and fear all of them. Or this one. Some people are intolerant, so I'm going to become radically intolerant in an attempt to enforce tolerance. Question mark. Okay, that doesn't make any sense, but, but that's happening, right? Everywhere. The ultimate social institution is the family unit. All right, mass answers all these questions, creates all this stability. So much about our society is shaped by the family unit, the ultimate social institution. And that, of course, is a fuzzier picture than it's ever been. The irony in this one is that the family is being questioned in deeper and deeper ways by an emerging generation, but we also have emerging generations who fail to launch and who won't let go of their family units. Now, why is that? I don't know, lots of reasons for that. I don't understand the whole picture at all. But at least a chunk of it is because the other stabilizing institutions that allow you to let go of the family unit and that institution, and you can cling to other institutions they don't feel as reliable, so I got to stay here, whether I want to or not. Rely on mom and dad, whether I still like them or not. I'm just going to stay here for a very long time. I think that's part of what's going on. Anywho, change the subject. Um, when this stuff, stuff like this happens on a large scale, then advanced societies like ours, this is an advanced society, they start acting more and more primitive. Think about it. The institutions that we develop that have helped us advance in the first place are either gone or they aren't trusted or relied upon. And so our anxiety goes from bad to worse. Some people say all the institutions are falling apart. They're all completely worthless. Okay, I don't think that's true. I don't know how damaged they are. I don't know these things. But if you think they're completely worthless, then you can no longer trust them as a place to go with your anxiety, right? So that becomes a self-fulfilling thing, okay? So whether it's that bad or not, if we don't trust our institutions, our anxiety goes from bad to worse, and then we regress. Specifically, we regress the tribalism. Think about why that is. You don't really trust the institutions, but you're still, we're still social creatures. We, we have to have something for connection, for security. We need someone to rely on. No one can handle being alone. And so we create tribes to create some measure of security and connection. Tribalism. So you tell me. Just think about it. We seeing any of that going on. Any extreme or fringe groups popping up in our society? Any of your friends been digging in their heels and becoming less and less reasonable? That's tribalism. And by the way, it happens in situations like this all the time. It's what humans do. When the anxiety is too much, we splinter into warring factions. We step out of community. We embed ourselves within a tribe. Usually, depending on our personalities, we then grab a megaphone and start spewing hate. We do all of it, listen, because we're human, because we're afraid. It's happening all around us. Everybody still with me? Okay. Let's talk about the Bible now. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3, 4, and 5. Familiar verse, verses. 
For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them, they created tribes, a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So this is pretty clear thinking for 2,000 years ago from the Apostle Paul, especially given our context. People will question established truth. They'll reject teachers. They will look for what suits them best, and they will find people who will tell them what they want to hear. I don't even have to ask. I know that you can see this happening in our context all around us. And because of social media and the ubiquity of the Internet, it's never been easier to find somebody who will tell you what you want to hear. This temptation has never been greater than it is now. So it's happening all around us, and it's because things are destabilized. Now listen, here's what I, I hope will come from this. If you're with me so far, then you understand why this is happening. And I want to say this to you. Don't blame or attack people for doing this. And know what makes them seem like they're our enemies. I know they get sort of hysterical or histrionic and over the top and they dig in. It's so frustrating. They're not your enemies. No human is our enemy. And don't assume malicious intent when people start behaving like this. Don't do that. Don't assume the worst. And you go, well, why? Why are they doing this? They're doing it because they're afraid. They're doing it for the same reasons you're tempted to do it. They're doing it for the same reasons why, perhaps in moments, you have done it. They're trying to hold on to anything that feels stable while the ground is shifting beneath them. No, it's not the right response, but it's rational, and they're desperate, and we don't attack them. We're understanding, we're patient, we're kind. Amen? Verse 5 says this. I love verse 5. Just joy in my heart because I know what's coming. Verse 5. But you, 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 Vineyard Church, you followers of Jesus, you, the people of God, you, keep your head in all situations. Keep your head in all, you, keep your head in all situations. I want to grab each of you by the face and let you run your eyes. Keep your head in all situations. You, 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 you. Keep your head in all situations. Keep your head in all situations. Keep your head in all situations. Keep your head. I'm just going to keep repeating it and call it preaching. Keep your head in all situations. Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Keep your head in all situations. Keep calm and carry on. I tricked you on that one, didn't I? But that's the same idea. Keep calm and carry on. Listen, of course people are panicking all around you. That's the way of things. It's what humans do in times like this, but not you. Not you. You. Keep your head in all situations. I'm so on fire for this idea. Who wants to get matching tattoos? Let's do it. I say we do it right, ironically around our necks. Keep your head in all situations. Who's in? Not a lot of you. I'm not in either. It's just an idea. Workshopping it. Okay. 
All right, but how? Okay, you can go, yeah, I want to keep my head. How do you do that? That's really the question, isn't it? I bet that all of you have already figured out a long time ago that you can't just tell an anxious person to be calm and expect it to work, right? You ever tried that? Backfires. You can't even tell yourself to be calm and expect it to work because you tried and it didn't work, remember? So how do we do this? How do we keep our heads and stay calm when people are panicking all around us? For that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Remember, we're kind of anchoring in 1 Thessalonians for the last part of this series. We'll start in verse 8, down through verse 11. But since we belong to the day, let us, again, people of God, let us be self-controlled, put on the armor of faith, love, the helmet of the hope of salvation. All right, now look at those words. I got a question. Church kids, Sunday school rats, or frankly, anybody who was here last week. You see the triad, the holy triad? It's not the same verse from last week. Same triad, faith, hope, and love. These three remain. These three remain. This is what defines us. This is who we are. Faith, hope, and love. This is our anchor. Uh, I want you to notice the faith, the hope, and the love, it comes in the form of armor. This is significant. The armor illustration is an acknowledgement by Paul. Sometimes this is really hard. Sometimes your fears aren't entirely unfounded. Sometimes things do get shaky. Sometimes it is unsafe. Sometimes your concerns are valid. And in those times, we don't panic. We put on the armor, specifically that of faith, hope, love. This is one of two places where Paul specifically talks about the helmet of salvation. I want you to think about what that means. Why would it be a helmet based on the hope of our salvation? When we know that we are children of God, when we know that our eternity is secure, when we know that we're loved by the King of glory then it guards our minds against overwhelming anxiety. It protects us. It helps us keep our heads. Now, you need to hear me say this. Um, I I think that our, our sort of like great superpower as a church moving forward in the next few years will be that we will keep our heads in all situations. I believe God is uniquely gifted this church to be that kind of an anchor anchor in this context. But hear me, I'm not saying that we do this by sticking our heads in the sand and just pretending that it's all sunshine and roses all the time. If you, if you live in a form of denial where you say God is good and therefore I just float above all this stuff and none of it affects me, and that's just, well, if you do that, you're never going to put on any armor, are you? And the solution here is armor. The reason we're able to keep our heads in the midst when the bullets are firing is because we know we've got good armor, like faith and hope and love, and specifically the hope of salvation to guard our minds. So this isn't about denial. This is about knowing who we are and knowing who's on our side. I remind you of something else that Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? The rhetorical question, but the answer is no one. Verse 9, 
For God did not appoint us to wrath. I'm going to pause here because there's some subset of people in the room who need to hear this and ask the Lord to give them the faith to believe it right now. God did not appoint you to wrath. Your assignment is not his condemnation. It is not hell. It is not your destruction. You're the people of God. You've not been appointed to wrath. Well, then what have we been appointed to? That's the next clause. But to obtain salvation. Your appointment is to obtain salvation. That's the promise to the people of God. That's the helmet of hope in salvation that keeps us sane and lets us keep our heads while people around us are losing cares. We obtain salvation. Well, how does that happen? That happens through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what did he do? Verse 10, he died for us. He died for you. He died to rescue you, bring you home. So that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together for him, with him. That's our future. People of God. If your hope is in Christ, then your hope is in Christ. And can you put your hope in some other stuff? I don't know. Maybe it'll hold. Maybe it won't. Maybe it's worthwhile. Maybe it isn't. But if you have one thing that is absolutely unshakable, why not go ahead and put all your hope there? This is our future. No matter what happens, live or die, you're okay. The children of God, you're okay. Live or die, we're okay. More specifically, God hasn't appointed you to wrath, but to salvation. Christ died for us, and therefore, verse 11, therefore encourage one another, build each other up, as you're already doing. Now don't run past that one, it's just a, just a sort of vague do-goodery. No, 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 here that is the command that it is. There are times when every person in this room is going to need some reasonable person to look at them and love and say, live or die, you're okay. We need to encourage one another. We need to build each other up, just as it text says. I said our, our superpower in the coming years will be that as a community, we're not going to lose our heads. We're going to be a non-anxious presence in a society that is ruled by anxiety. <clears throat> but here's the reality. A lot of people around here, and at any given moment, a few of us will be losing our heads. Even when we're all determined not to ever lose our heads, and we can get the tattoos and everything, and still, a few of us, at any given moment, will be losing our heads because, darn it, we're all humans. But this is the point. This is a collective. We are a community. When I say we're going to keep our heads in all situations, I am not saying that if you aren't great at keeping your head and staying calm, then you're going to have to go. That's not what I'm saying at all. Guess what? None of us are all that great at that. What I am saying is that when you are panicked, and we all get there sometimes, we all panic sometimes, what I'm saying is that when that happens, there will be a community here to help you, anchor you, faith and hope and love to encourage you, as Paul said, remind you of these things. No matter what happens, we are anchored in the hope of our salvation. Live or die, we are with the King of glory, and it is well with our souls. We remind ourselves of these things. I'm also not saying that we do not grieve or feel loss or feel vulnerability or instability or concern when things are shaking around us. 
I'm not saying that we're unbothered by things that are broken in our world that would be unloving to be unbothered. The fact is, I spent two years grieving the shifts in our culture. Most of the time, I didn't even know what I was grieving. I didn't understand it. Finally, I got my head around it. But I spent two years in grief. But we keep our heads in that grief, in that frustration, because for us, those things aren't ultimate. Guys, we're just not in the same boat as everybody else. It's a different reality for us. You've got to see that for lots of people. Their anchor, their foundation really is starting to crumble. And for some folks, maybe panic is a fully justified response. Institutions that provide stability and security are somewhat weakened and compromised. I don't know how much, but somewhat. And for some folks, the anchor isn't holding, and maybe panicking is a good idea for them. But not so with us. Not so with the people of God, secure in our salvation. And I'm telling you, listen, this isn't just warm, fuzzy thoughts. This isn't mind over matter. This isn't wishful thinking. This is profoundly rational. This is pure fa fact. We're the children of God. That's how we can keep our heads when everyone else theirs. We don't have to convince ourselves that things aren't okay, um, or pardon me, that things are okay when they aren't. We don't have to be in denial about those things because we hold to a greater truth. We just have to remind ourselves of who we really are. Amen? All right. David, you can come on up, help us wrap this thing. So here's a thought to hold on to. If we build institutions to manage our anxiety, and those institutions falter, or they appear to be faltering, then where do we go with our anxiety? It's going to go somewhere. We look around, we see what's happening in our broader culture. We see people going some pretty raunchy places with that anxiety. We see tribalism, people kicking into attack mode, anger, isolation, skyrocketing rates of depression and other anxiety-related disorders. It's just happening everywhere. So that's what's happening in the broader society. What's the word of the Lord to us when we go, hey, some of the things that we've been relying on don't seem so reliable. 1 Peter 5, verse 7 says it clear as a bell. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We have that. We have that. And if we do that, we can keep our heads. And we don't have to let the anxiety spill over onto people around us. We can actually love our enemies instead of attacking them. We can bless the ones who persecute us. I think, I think Christians tend to think if there's a drop of persecution, then that's the end of the world and Jesus falls off his throne. Historically and biblically speaking, it's probably the beginning of something beautiful, by the way. But if we're persecuted, we can do what Jesus said, bless and pray for those who persecute us. Guys, if your hope is in politics, if that's really your hope, you have really no choice but to attack your political opponents. No choice. But if your hope is in Jesus, then you can wash the feet of your political opponents and love them and bless them speak well of them. We can model kindness. We can be a non-anxious presence and not lose our 
heads. Last call on the matching tattoos. I'm still not in. A lot of minors raise their hand. It's like, that's not an option. I can't explain that to your parents at all. Uh, let's have Selah a moment or two to pray and reflect. King Jesus, um, please meet with us in this moment. Brief moment to be still. We don't like it when things get shaky around us. It's scary and destabilizing. But when in those moments our anxiety runs amok, it's revealing to us that perhaps to some degree we've placed our hope in institutions and not in you. A thousand years from now, Lord, if you tarry, all this will be gone. Every institution we know will be gone. All of us will be gone. And yet you will remain. That's where we place our hope. Lord, would you correct us, challenge us? And Lord, we want to obey your commandment. You said, cast all your anxiety on me because I care for you. And we also have to confess to you, Lord, that I don't know how to do that. And we can't do that without your help. So Lord, would you miraculously, I think it takes a miracle, would you miraculously intervene on our behalf so that we might have the capacity to obey your very kind commandment to us. To cast all our anxieties on you because you care for us. Help us, King Jesus.